0: So last week, if you were here, we started a new four-week summer worship series, and we're titling it Four Lenses, One Jesus. And what we're doing is we're thinking together about something that when you step back and think about it is actually a rather odd fact, and that is that when we Christians carry around our Bibles, we're actually carrying around four different accounts of Jesus' life known as the Gospel according to Matthew, the Gospel according to Mark, according to Luke, and according to John. Last week, I made the claim that when we read these Gospels, most of us, most of the time, and probably without knowing it, are Tatianites. Tatian was a second-century theologian, Christian theologian, who had an idea And that was that we take the four Gospels and we blend them. We harmonize them. We harmonize them into one single narrative and then we dispense with those four Gospels and just use his one Gospel, which he called the Diatessaron. But this is what's interesting. The early church considered Tatian's proposal. They prayed about it. And they came to the conclusion that no... God himself intends for us to experience Jesus through these four personalities, through these four perspectives of these four unique human beings that we know as the four evangelists. And the metaphor that we are using during this series is that each gospel writer is looking at the one historical Jesus through four different sets of lenses, through four glasses. And because of that, each one of them notices different things. Each one of them emphasizes certain things. And what, part of what makes these lenses of each one of these gospel writers different from the others is that God's given each of them a different personality. He's given them different experiences. He's given them their own outlook, and he's even given them their own particular audience for which they imagine that they are writing their Gospels. And as the early church told Tatian, God seems to want it this way. And so, as part of our year-long effort here in worship to better know and to better understand this Jesus we follow— to, in the words of the session in our um, discernment right now, to return to Jesus as our first love, over these four weeks of this series, we're going to do our best to peer through, one by one, these four different sets of gospel glasses and ask, what does the one Jesus look like through each particular lens? How does each writer's perspective deepen the way that I already see Jesus? And how might it happen that if we look through one of the other gospel lenses, how that might stretch us, how it might give us some new insight and make our experience of Jesus even richer? Okay, so last week, if you were here, we looked through Mark's lenses, and we saw with Mark the assertive Messiah. Next week, Kurt is going to help us look through Luke's lenses. Through those lenses, we are going to see the healing Messiah. On the 17th, we are going to look through John's lens, and we are going to see the loving Messiah. And that means that this week, we are going to look through the lens that Matthew looks through. And when we look through Matthew's lens, here they are, what do we see? You've probably already figured this out we see the teaching Messiah. And that's why I'm using these round, rather teacherly academic lenses to represent Matthew. Teacherly, though, not in the sense of abstractly intellectual or purely theoretical. I'm going to come back to this in a minute. But in Matthew's gospel, learning is always discipleship. And that word, actually, disciple, means a learner. Discipleship is a particularly hands-on and practical kind of learning. Now, of course, all four Gospels portray Jesus teaching the life of discipleship, but in Matthew's telling, Jesus is even more intentional and more methodical a teacher. I'm going to show you what I mean with today's passage. If you want to grab your Bible, it's in front of you in that pew, and open to Matthew 7, the end of Matthew 7, Matthew By the way, I would guess three-fourths of the way back through the Bible. It is the first book of the New Testament, the first of the Gospels in the way that they're ordered in our Bibles. And this is the end of chapter 7. Now, you may be thinking, huh, chapter 7, Matthew 7, that kind of rings a bell. The reason is that Matthew 7 is the third and final chapter. It's the conclusion of Jesus' great three-chapter-long sermon on the mount. Significant that only Matthew has the Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5 through 7. This morning what we're going to do is we're going to read the very end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and then we're going to keep going. We're going to keep going right into chapter 8, into what comes next, because I want you to notice something that is classic Matthew. It's a clear transition between two modes of teaching, two modes of Jesus' teaching. And I think of this as sort of like the bell at the end of class. The lesson, the classroom lecture is over. Now the practicum, the fieldwork begins. All right, this is Matthew seven twenty four through 8, 4. Listen for God's word. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it, had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand, and the rain came down, and the streams rose, and the wind blew, beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. When Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man, I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. Then Jesus said to him, see that you don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. So, probably at some point in your academic career, no matter what it was, you had a teacher who, in the curriculum, required two different sorts of reading, or learning, rather, in that class. That there would be, some of the learning would happen through classroom lecture, and some of it would happen through lab work. Well, to Matthew, Jesus is that kind of teacher, And you can see it clearly in that first verse in this passage that we just read, in verse 24, where Jesus is just beginning to wrap up his three-chapter-long Sermon on the Mount and he says, everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Can you see it? Right there. Yes, Jesus says. It is important to hear the words I said. Don't miss class. Don't skip this amazing Sermon on the Mount that I have been giving for these last three chapters. But until you can put what I have said into action, you are not yet wise. The kind of learning that Matthew loves to portray Jesus bringing about is really closer to that of an apprentice learning a craft from a master craftsman. So there is teaching, but then there is doing. And then there's some more teaching, and then there's doing. And to Matthew, it is this back-and-forth rhythm of discipleship, learning and then doing, learning and then doing. It is so central to how Jesus works in the life of any believer in Matthew's view, that he actually organizes his entire gospel around this rhythm. And this chart is going to show you what I mean. And you may never think of Matthew in the same way again. Okay, so Matthew has a beginning and an ending. The beginning, of course, two chapters about the Christmas story, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem. And then there's an ending, and that is three chapters about Holy Week, about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. That leaves 23 chapters in the middle to tell the story of Jesus' life. Matthew chooses to tell that story as the story of Jesus teaching discipleship. And the way that he does this is through five extended sessions of fieldwork, hands-on learning, which alternate with five extended classroom seminars. There's a block of lab work, There is a seminar. There's a block of lab work. There is a seminar. What this means is the Sermon on the Mount, which you might already know, is actually just the first of five similar classroom seminars. And the reason I wanted to read the end of the Sermon on the Mount is that as a narrator, Matthew always adds this almost identical transitional verse between the seminar going out to the lab work, going out to the field work. And it's at the end of each one of Jesus' long classroom seminars. So this, a verse like this happens in chapter 7, chapter 11, chapter 13, chapter 19, and chapter 26. And it always begins, when Jesus had finished saying these things, dot, dot, dot. And then it goes into um, back into the field to learn hands-on what this is like. So, what are the contents of these five classroom seminars around which Matthew organizes his whole book. I'm going to summarize them briefly. You'll be glad. Briefly. First one, the one that you might know, which is the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's not really a sermon in the sense that it is not one continuously beautiful crafted sermon like mine. It is a whole series of short lessons, kind of self-standing lessons, in which Jesus describes the radical life of a follower of Jesus. So it starts with those Beatitudes, which some of you will be studying at the Uptons this summer. Those are like blessed or the peacemaker. And then there's how to be salt and light. There's living out a higher righteousness in matters of sexuality and forgiveness, loving our neighbors, turning the other cheek, not worrying, not judging others. Wraps it up, as we heard, What we we heard in that passage was just the beginning of Jesus taking his disciples, taking his apprentices on an extended field trip following this first classroom seminar. It's a field trip of healing and casting out demons. But then it's back to the classroom. Chapter 10, second seminar. This is an orientation of what the disciples are going to need to know when they set out on their own in mission, when they go to heal and to preach. They're going to have to know about preaching, they'll have to know about healing. Jesus wants them to know that persecution, maybe even martyrdom is likely, but they don't need to be afraid because God is with them and because the rewards of faithfulness are assured. So, wraps up the second seminar? Yep. Yep back out into the field to watch the master in action for two chapters as he shows them what curing people and what preaching looks like. And then it's back to the classroom for a third seminar. This is chapter 13. This is the parable seminar. Jesus teaches them about the parable as a teaching tool, how parables work. And then in Matthew's gospel, he collects a bunch of these parables, and Jesus uses them as examples. So there in chapter 13, he actually says, tells the disciples, eight of those familiar parables. And then it's back into the field again for four chapters of miracles, healing, engaging with the scribes and Pharisees. And then back to the classroom for a fourth seminar, chapter 18. And this is where Jesus teaches the disciples about the distinctive character of community that followers of Jesus are to practice. So this is a seminar about serving one another. And it's a, se- a seminar about forgiving one another. You might know the um, you need to forgive people seven times, 70 times. That actually happens in the fourth seminar. That seminar's done, so there's that transition verse, and then back out for five chapters of field work, of healing and preaching and engaging um, the community. And then back for a final classroom seminar. chapters 24 through 25. And in this seminar, Jesus pulls back just a bit that shroud on the future and teaches the disciples how to recognize the coming signs of the end of the age. So that is Matthew's syllabus. That is the unique way that Matthew organizes his whole book in order to portray Jesus more than anything as the teacher of discipleship. But who is this teacher? Why, to Matthew, does this particular teacher matter? Well, Mark Strauss is a New Testament scholar, and I'm using his book Four Portraits, One Jesus, in this series, he suggests two answers. Two elements of Jesus' identity that, looking through Matthew's particular lens, Matthew sees as most important. The first tells us something about the early Christians for whom Matthew is writing this gospel. As as you'd expect from reading the book of Acts, most of those first Christian congregations that are scattered all around the Mediterranean world, most of them were a mix of two sorts of people. There were those with a Jewish background who had decided to follow Jesus. But there were also those with a Gentile, a Roman, a pagan background who had also decided to follow Jesus. And they were all mixed up together, sitting next to each other there in the pews each Sunday morning. And as you can imagine, that for both of these groups, but in slightly different ways, there were some really deep questions about all of those generations of God's people who are described in the Old Testament, God's covenant people through the generations, And there's the question that, hold it, now now that Jesus has come, has God simply abandoned the Jews, forgot about them, written them off, is this some, like, big plan B that God came up with because plan A somehow failed? Well, more than any of the other three Gospels, Matthew sets out to prove once and for all that Jesus is not God's accidental afterthought. Jesus, Mark says, this one to whom we apprentice our lives, this master who teaches us, is what Israel's God has intended, has promised, has been up to all along through those generations. Matthew wants his readers to know in no uncertain terms that while Jesus doesn't fit the messianic expectations of the religious leaders of his day, Jesus is, in fact, Israel's promised Messiah. And this is why Matthew, more than any other gospel, writes into his story Old Testament quotations. It's a very characteristic Matthew thing. Fifty-seven times he quotes a passage from the Old Testament. And he always begins it with this formula. He says, this event in Jesus' life that he's talking about was to fulfill what... This prophet or that prophet wrote, and then he quotes the prophet 57 times. Well, for us, reading Matthew's gospel 20 centuries later, as Gentile believers mercifully grafted into God's story with Israel, this means that we too are part of a story that goes all the way back to the beginning. That we serve a God who is consistent and a God who is faithful to his promises. That's the first thing. Matthew wants to show that Jesus is Israel's promised Messiah. But to Matthew, Jesus is a whole lot more than just the human political figure that most Jews expected. It's interesting, Matthew is the only gospel that uses this particular Hebrew word for Jesus. It's in one of his fulfillment passages, and it's the word Emmanuel. And the word Emmanuel in Hebrew simply means God with us. God with us. Jesus is Messiah, yes, Matthew says, but he's also God himself here with us. One of the ways that this shows up in Matthew's gospel is that far more than the other writers, Matthew refers to Jesus or records Jesus referring to himself as the Son of God. In a lot of similar stories in Mark, Jesus calls himself the son of man. But in Matthew's gospel, he's the son of God. A really good example. Last week, I talked about that episode. It's at Caesarea Philippi, and it's where Jesus turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? You might remember in Mark's gospel, Peter simply says, you are the Messiah. Well, Matthew remembers in that episode Peter saying six further words, six words that declare that Jesus is also God himself with us. You are the Messiah, Peter says, but he goes on, the son of the living God. And here in two passages that only Matthew has, Matthew shows us readers that if In Jesus, God is with us. If this Emmanuel shows us what God is truly like, then the heart of this God must be tender indeed. It must show love that is unfathomable. Because this God, according to Matthew, clearly has a heart that breaks for his broken, hurting children. It's in Matthew's gospel that... Matthew portrays Jesus cresting that hill for the first time as an adult, seeing Jerusalem on the horizon. And Jesus raises his voice in this anguished cry and says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And he, uh, Jesus actually describes himself as a grieving mother hen. It's really tender. God's heart is revealed even more poignantly in a verse that many scholars identify as the directional fulcrum around which Matthew's gospel and the entire plot turns. We just talked about that moment when Peter, there at Caesarea Philippi, declares, Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Son of God. Well, Matthew tells us it is from that moment, from that moment, that the entire trajectory of Jesus' ministry changes, as if demonstrating what being the son of this God really looks like, Jesus begins his inexorable journey toward Jerusalem and through to that cross. That, says Matthew, is what Emmanuel really means. So last week, I suggested that Mark 1.15 was Mark's entire gospel compressed into one verse. Well, for Matthew... It is his last three verses of his whole gospel. This is chapter 28, verses 17 through 19. Again, probably a familiar passage. It even has a name. We call this the Great Commission. Matthew's final three verses are the Great Commission. But can you see in these verses a concise summary of what Matthew sees when he looks through the particular lens that the Holy Spirit gave him at The historical Jesus. As he looks at Jesus through these lenses. First, the God of the Old Testament has given me all authority as Messiah and Son. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And what does Jesus choose to do with this authority? He wants to create disciples. If you want one word about Matthew's gospel, it is the discipleship gospel. Go therefore into all the world and make disciples. How do you do this? By teaching, of course, but not just teaching, teaching them to obey all that I command. So there it is again the teaching and the doing, the teaching and the doing. What Jesus is doing is sending those disciples out into the world to train people like us to put into practice this continuing rhythm of learning and doing, learning and doing. But I'm quite sure that Matthew leaves until the very last verse of his gospel, the message that he most wants us readers to hear from the lips of this Jesus that he knows and that he loves and that he follows. Because in this one crucial way, Jesus is different from most of those other masters who train apprentices. When their training is done, those masters send their apprentices out into the field to make their fortune on their own. Not this master, not this teacher. Matthew wants us to know, as certainly as we know anything, that by the power of the resurrection... This living and ascended Messiah and Son of God does not leave us on our own, but promises to be with us. Lo, I will be with you always, with us every minute of every day of every year. And that is a lesson that's worth learning. Amen.